We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Episode 762 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Wednesday, February 14th, 2024. It is Valentine's Day, 2024. A happy Valentine's Day to those who celebrate. It also is Ash Wednesday, and this is the day on which nationals, pitchers, and catchers are having Their first workout of 2024 National Spring Training, which is taking place in West Palm Beach, Florida. Orioles pitchers and catchers will have their first workout of 2024 Spring Training on Thursday. Spring Training has arrived, uh, even though the majority of each team's Spring Training camp happens in winter. But for some reason, we call this Spring Training, not Winter Training. I guess Spring Training sounds more hopeful, more optimistic, more cheery. Hello and welcome to this Wednesday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Next segment, in-depth, high-level X's and O's commander's conversation with commander's analyst Mark Bullock of Bullock's Film Room, which you can find at markbullock.substack.com. First time that we've spoken with Mark in a while, so we have a lot of catching up to do. Uh, Mark will give us film breakdown analysis of what to be thinking with the commander's defense under new head coach Dan Quinn and new defensive coordinator Joe Witt Jr., and what to be thinking with the commander's offense under new offensive coordinator Cliff Kingsbury. And we are going to have the quarterback conversation. Mark is going to provide us with film breakdown analysis of the perceived top three quarterbacks in the 2024 NFL Draft. USC's Caleb Williams, North Carolina's Drake May, and LSU's Jaden Daniels. And not necessarily in that order. Uh, Mark has studied all three. His verdict is coming up next segment in a supersized appearance on this podcast. Our next segment also will give you the latest on Dan Quinn's coaching staff with the Commanders. Also on the show, we'll talk Capitals. Uh, They on Tuesday night got doubled up by the Colorado Avalanche, a 6-3 loss at Capital One Arena, despite, yes, 
Top line left wing Alex Ovechkin scoring again a third period power play goal. He now has a six game goal scoring streak. And I'll review a busy night in college basketball. Georgetown got smashed at number 17 Creighton 94-72. Number 21 Virginia's eight game winning streak and 23 game home winning streak, which had been the longest in Division One men's basketball, ended uh, a 74-63 loss to Pitt at John Paul Jones Arena in Charlottesville, Virginia. But Virginia Tech won an 83-75 win over Florida State at Castle Coliseum in Blacksburg, Virginia. Before we get to some feedback, update on the plan for Cavs and Wizards home games to move to a new arena in the Potomac Yard area of Alexandria, Virginia, beginning with the team's 2028-2029 seasons. Uh, Virginia's House of Delegates on Tuesday passed a bill that would allow for the building of this uh, sports and entertainment district to move forward. But the bill now moves to the Virginia Senate. And as we talked about on Tuesday's show, episode 761, the bill right now is facing significant opposition from Democrats in the Virginia Senate, including Luis Lucas, who is the chairwoman of Virginia Senate Finance and Appropriations Committee, who on Monday indicated that She's not interested in even really discussing the bill. Uh, Said Monica Dixon, who is the president of external affairs and chief administrative officer for Monumental Sports and Entertainment, which, of course, owns the Caps and Wizards, quote, we look forward to working with the leadership members and staff of the Virginia Senate to answer their questions and earn their support for this uh, transformative economic opportunity End quote. Uh, Translation, let the negotiating begin. (laughs) Uh, As then Minnesota Vikings receiver Randy Moss famously said in 2004, straight cash, homie. Straight cash, homie. That's right. (laughs) Straight cash, homie. Cash has a way of making problems go away. And so if monumental sports and entertainment shows Virginia the cash, Uh, by perhaps upping the offer from Monumental in terms of the money that Monumental is putting in, uh, then I think you will see Democrats in the Virginia Senate get on board. But we shall see. Uh, You can hit me up on X at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I have received feedback to something that I brought up on last Friday's show, episode 759, and that is the NFL in Super Bowl-themed posts on X on February 6th, censoring the logo of the Native American warrior on Redskins helmets. And I said that I did not recall the NFL doing this, actually censoring the Skins logo of the Native American warrior. Email from Dave in Israel. Writes Dave, in response to the discussion in episode 759 regarding the censoring of the Redskins name, no, this is not new. An episode of NFL Network's Good Morning Football in June 2023 featured John Riggins, but only as a New York Jet. Only shown were videos and footage of his tenure with the Jets, and there was only a cursory reference to the fact that after the Jets, he played for, quote, Washington, end quote. This pathetic whitewashing of the Redskins' name and proud tradition is tragic not only for those of us who grew up with the team and for the players who played for the team, but also for members of the Native American community who derived so much pride from the team. As a proud member of the Israel Redskins Nation, 
We Jews in Israel stand proudly with our fellow indigenous Native Americans and strongly object to the eradication of their history. HTTR. Uh, thank you for the email, Dave. So, as you may have seen or heard, Super Bowl 58 this past Sunday evening did record-shattering numbers. The Kansas City Chiefs 25-22 overtime win over the San Francisco 49ers is the most watched telecast in United States history. A total audience delivery of 123.4 million average viewers across all platforms. CBS had 120 million viewers, largest audience ever for a single network. And so, so many millions of people saw the Native American-themed happenings with the Chiefs, including as the Chiefs took the field for the game, the war chant and the tomahawk chop, the so-called arrowhead chop, by who knows how many thousands of Chiefs fans at Allegiant Stadium in Paradise, Nevada. And understand that the war chant and the chop were done to music that was being played. So this stuff was encouraged by the team and thus by proxy, the NFL. Forget about the hypocrisy of the Chiefs being allowed to do this stuff, but Washington no longer being allowed to be the Redskins. How about the hypocrisy of the Chiefs being allowed to do this stuff and the NFL now censoring the skin's helmet with the Native American warrior? Like, at the very least, the NFL could allow for history to still be history and just not censor the helmet. But instead, the NFL is censoring the helmet while still allowing and encouraging the Chiefs to do the war chant and the arrowhead chop. Wherever you stand on the Redskins name issue, tell me that there isn't massive hypocrisy in this situation. Explain to me how there isn't massive hypocrisy in this situation to say nothing of how the stuff with the Chiefs gets like microscopic criticism from the same people who lambasted the Skins for their team name for years. If you were against the Skins name, fine. But then you better also be against this stuff with the Chiefs. Because remember, a big part of being against the skin's name was not just the name itself, but the Native American imagery, the idea of cultural appropriation. So if the Redskins name and the logo of the Native American warrior aren't good, aren't okay, aren't kosher, then neither should the Chiefs stuff be good or okay or kosher. And it is this hypocrisy that has bothered me with the name issue more than anything. I think that reasonable people can disagree on whether the name of the team should still be Redskins, but you will never convince me that there is justification for this hypocrisy. And because the Chiefs are so good, we every NFL postseason get the hypocrisy shoved in our face, right? I mean, we see this hypocrisy every January and February, it seems, these days. Uh, Email from Richard Dilworth writes Richard, with all of the recent talk about the new ownership group disliking the newest team name, I would like to make a modest proposal. I would like for the team to go back to the original team colors of true burgundy and gold. I've been an avid fan for 50 years, but unlike most folks my age, I was glad when we finally ditched the nickname Redskins. The when used as a pejorative argument is valid, but it still sounds mostly racist and dated, two abhorrent things to move forward into a new era. 
For the record, I'm a Washington Wolves proponent, or at least Red Wolves. The alliteration and symmetry of Washington Wolves is important, but imagine the idea of a Monday night football game with a full moon on the big screen, the Capitol in the background, and 55,000 fans howling <laughs> as the team takes the field. Throw in barking at an official's bad call and the association with dogs as a marketing tool, and I believe it is a can't-miss nickname if there is such a thing. I propose that we also ditch the bright red and yellow colors of our glory years. I've been watching a lot of Western movies lately, and the Native Americans are usually portrayed in war paint of vivid red and yellow example pics attached. Escaping any and all associated imagery of Redskins is preferable. In my humble opinion, and returning to our OG history makes distancing us from the colors of the Super Bowl teams more palatable. Burgundy is unique throughout the league, and a Notre Dame sparkling gold accent color would be dope, especially with all of the new paints and fabrics that have come up of late. The 49ers are a dull, bronzy gold and brighter red than burgundy if there are any copyright issues. If there are issues with contrasting between the burgundy and gold colors, i.e. how to make the numbers and logos stick out, then solve that with a white border rather than a garish bright yellow color. Don't even get me started on the caution yellow face masks. Those face masks couldn't have been more distracting to the player's vision and were unappealing to my old school eyes. It's a good time for a full rebrand with as many references to the past as possible while fully retreating from all Redskins associated imagery. Uh, Thank you (laughs) for the email, Richard. Boy, that is about as detailed and well thought out of an email regarding how the commanders should move forward with their color scheme (laughs) as I have ever received. It's funny, when the name of the team was changing in the summer of 2020, one of the things that came out was the team keeping its primary colors of burgundy and gold. And many of us, myself included, celebrated the keeping of the primary colors of burgundy and gold. But as Richard points out, and as so many have noticed, uh, there with the commander's uniforms definitely has been some, shall we say, flexible interpretation (laughs) of what is burgundy and what is gold. Although, to be fair, and Richard referenced this in his email, there has been that flexible interpretation of especially gold for years. The skin's uniform forms from the glory days of the 1980s and early 1990s were more burgundy and yellow than burgundy and gold. Uh, The skins uniforms from the 1970s were more burgundy and gold. Uh, Well, whatever your preferred color scheme for our football team is, we always hope that things are going well for you. But if you've been harmed by the negligence of someone else or if someone who you care about has been harmed by the negligence of someone else, always know that the great law firm of Paulson and Nace is there for you. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. Call 202-902-7611. And when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace has won millions of dollars for clients and was just named as part of U.S. News and World Report's Best Law Firm's 2024 edition. Paulson and Nace is a Washington, D.C.-based family law firm that handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C., 
at West Virginia. Paulson and Ace fights for victims of all kinds of situations, including victims of errors made during diagnosis during surgery or with medication, victims of injuries caused by dangerous medications or medical devices, as well as defective auto parts, victims of accidents involving cars, trucks, bikes, or motorcycles, victims of deceptive trade practices and false advertising, heck, victims of shady lawyers. If your attorney acts in bad faith is unethical, in his or her counsel, or is negligent in his or her work, you could have a claim for legal malpractice. Paulson and Nace has represented corporate clients throughout the region. Attorneys Chris Nace and Matt Nace are experienced trial attorneys who are not afraid to take cases to trials, and that's because Paulson and Nace wins trials. If you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wronged but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Call 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. And when you call, tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. You could also visit paulsonandnace.com. That's paulsonandnace.com. Just don't forget to tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace, if you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you are listening to this podcast via Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can rate the podcast with a star rating. Five-star ratings are greatly appreciated. They help us out a lot. Thank you for doing them. Uh, We on Tuesday learned more about the coaching staff of new Commanders head coach Dan Quinn. We on Tuesday morning had multiple reports that the team is hiring David Rye as tight ends coach. Uh, David Rye spent the 2023 season as a senior offensive analyst for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He does have significant history with new Commanders offensive coordinator Cliff Kingsbury. Rye was the Arizona Cardinals receivers coach for the 2019 and 2020 seasons, which were Kingsbury's first two seasons as Cardinals head coach. And Rye was with Texas Tech for the 2013 season, which was Kingsbury's first season as Texas Tech head coach. Also, we on Tuesday afternoon had multiple reports that the commanders are keeping Bobby Ingram as receivers coach and are hiring Sharif Floyd as assistant defensive line coach. Uh, Floyd spent the 2023 season with the Dallas Cowboys as quality control and assistant defensive line coach. So he was with Dan Quinn, who was the Cowboys defensive coordinator. So we, with Dan Quinn staff now, are waiting on a running backs coach and a defensive line coach, in addition to potentially more lower level assistants. Uh, the coaching staff is as follows. Dan Quinn, officially as head coach. On offense, Cliff Kingsbury, officially as offensive coordinator. Brian Johnson, reportedly with a significant role as an offensive coach. Tavita Pritchard, reportedly staying as quarterbacks coach. Bobby Johnson, reportedly as offensive line coach. Bobby Ingram, reportedly staying as receivers coach. David Rye, reportedly as a tight ends coach. On defense, Joe Witt Jr., officially as defensive coordinator. Jason Simmons, reportedly as defensive backs coach and defensive passing game coordinator. Ken Norton Jr., reportedly as linebackers coach. Ryan Kerrigan, reportedly staying, but with a new title, assistant linebackers coach and pass rush specialist. Sharif Floyd, reportedly as assistant defensive line coach, and John Pagano, reportedly as senior defensive assistant, and then Larry Izzo, reportedly 
as a special teams coordinator. I'm very pleased to welcome back to the Al Galdi podcast, Commanders analyst Mark Bullock. Uh, Mark is exceptional at talking Commanders from an X's and O's standpoint, but he also is a Commanders fan. He does tremendous Commanders film breakdowns. You can read Mark's work on his Substack, Bullock's Film Room, which you can find at markbullock.com. Substack.com. He puts up multiple posts per week. He has written for The Athletic and for The Washington Post. You can follow Mark on X at Mark Bullock NFL. Hey, Mark, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks. And yourself? Doing well. Uh, First time that we've spoken since the commanders hired Dan Quinn as head coach, but I'm actually kind of glad that we did not talk about the hiring until now because we do now have a good sense of his coaching staff, which of course is such a big part of a head coaching hire. What are your thoughts uh, on this Dan Quinn coaching staff? Yeah, I think it's a it's a really intriguing staff. Um, I, I think you like a lot of what the defensive parts that we've seen so far with Joe Witt Jr. Um, has uh, some real pedigree. Um, Jason Simmons that they brought in as well has that those two have um, some real strong history and, and, and their track records of development of, of players throughout not just one or two seasons but a, a long time in the NFL is is very good and very promising um, so I, I think on that side of the board it's, it's really promising so far um, from what we've seen of the staff on the offensive side of the ball it's uh, intriguing again but with some concerns I guess um, Cliff Kingsbury obviously is kind of the headline as the offensive coordinator, then, then Brian Johnson as this kind of, we, we don't know officially the title yet, we expect some sort of pass game coordinator. Um, and um, we heard about the offensive line coach coming from the Giants, Bobby uh, Bobby Johnson, um, which is a little bit confusing. Uh, it, it's kind of a weird combination. Um, Kingsbury is someone that... Uh, when he had success in Arizona, he, he did a real nice job of um, evolving his offense to meet what the NFL kind of needs out of an offense where, um, you know, when he came into the league, it was this air raid system and it's four wide receivers, up-tempo, very little running the ball, all out of the shotgun and stuff like that. And, and he still had elements of that, but he, over the over the, his time in Arizona, in, in, in 2022, by the end of it, he was much more conventional. He was using two tight end sets. He was running the ball pretty consistently. Um, and I think that's down to having an offensive line coach that is, was really experienced and um, kind of coordinated the run game. And, and so I felt like that was going to be a key hire, which which makes this Bobby Johnson one kind of an odd one because his history, at least his most recent history, isn't particularly good with the Giants. But, um, but then you also have the Brian Johnson hire where he's a guy that a year ago everyone thought is going to be one of the next future head coaches, the next bright young offensive minds in the league. And, and obviously things didn't go well in the end in Philly, um, but he he's still pretty highly thought of. And, and there was certainly more going on in Philly than just the offense stuttering a little bit at the end of the year like they still they still won 11 games and, and they still went to the playoffs so um I, I think that one's probably the, the most exciting out of that that offensive trio but um it's kind of an odd pairing um or an odd grouping of, of coaches 
We're going to do more on Cliff Kingsbury in a bit, but you and your Substack have put up multiple breakdowns regarding what we might expect from the commander's defense under Dan Quinn and Joe Witt Jr. Uh, they, of course, worked together for the Dallas Cowboys uh, for the last three seasons. Quinn was the Cowboys defensive coordinator. Witt was the Cowboys secondary coach and defensive passing game coordinator. Some really good results, a lot of takeaways. Uh, what jumps out at you in studying how the Cowboys defenses under Quinn and Witt did what those defenses did? Yeah, the, the, the first thing that jumped out at me was how much his system has evolved. Um, when you think of Dan Quinn, you think of the, the Seahawks, um, their, their cover three system with uh, Richard Sherman and Earl Thomas and Cam Chancellor and that Legion of Boom. Um, it was a very kind of rigid system. You knew they were going to play cover three the majority of the game, but they were so good at it that you couldn't beat them. Um, and then he tried to replicate that in Atlanta and it didn't really go that well. Um, but then you watch what he, he did in Dallas and, and it's drastically different. It's a lot more man coverage. That um, they basically lived in man coverage, um, but they they didn't go halfway into it. They they said we're going to play with a real aggressive mindset, and um, we're going to use the free rusher that we get from playing in man coverage. We're, we're going to rush five, sometimes six. Um, we're going to try to force the quarterback to get rid of the ball early by by pressuring him by committing to rushing and then we're going to allow our cornerbacks, even though they're in man coverage, we're going to allow them to, to sit off and break on anything underneath because we know that ball's coming out real quick. Um, and it was a real commitment to that aggressive style that allowed guys like Trayvon Diggs and Deron Bland to go and get as many interceptions and, and pick sixes as, as we've seen from them the last few years. And, um, so it's, it's a, the style is still very aggressive and very everything top down, drive down on things and, and try to attack the ball. As you say, they're very good at creating turnovers, um, but the the way they do it has evolved. And, and I think that speaks to um, Dan Quinn's understanding of, hey, the cover three stuff that we ran 10 years ago was great 10 years ago. The league is caught up, but we need to adjust and we need to evolve. And, and that's encouraging to see that he didn't just stick to his ways of going, oh, no, I know best. This is this is the best way to do things. No, uh, his ego wasn't too big that he could admit that we needed to grow. And, and I think that's, that's a very good quality for a coach to have. We now are inside of a month until the start of NFL free agency. Uh, we, on March 11th, have the start of the NFL's legal tampering period. And we, on March 13th, have the start of the NFL's new league year, uh, which means the official start of free agency and the trading period. Uh, the commanders have a lot of players set to be unrestricted free agents this offseason, including a lot of defensive players, principal among them safety Cameron Curl and corner Kendall Fuller. You on your Substack last Thursday examined the state of the commander's roster in terms of defensive players. Do the commanders, in order to do defense, how we expect Dan Quinn and Joe Witt Jr. to want to do defense, have a number of the necessary pieces, or is this defense in need of an overhaul? Uh, I do think they will need a, a pretty significant overhaul. Um, I, I think uh, when you look at what the Cowboys did the past few years, they they were stacked up front with a lot of good defensive linemen. Uh, obviously, Michael Parsons is is not walking through the door, so they, they can't just build the defense around him like, like Quinn did in Dallas. Um, 
but they're going to need to be able to manufacture a pass rush somewhere and, and outside of John Allen and, and Dron Payne, they, they, they just lack the, the real legit pass rushers. So they're, they're going to need to find some edge rushers and, and possibly a, a linebacker that can join the rush and, and stuff like that. Um, but I, I think obviously Dron, Dron Payne and Jonathan Allen are, are guys that will fit any system. They're, they are very good players um, and they probably give a better foundation than what Cowboys had in terms of um, the Cowboys weren't particularly stout against the run. Um, and they, they, you know, they were so focused on rushing the pass so that they often had lighter guys in, in the interior and, and weren't particularly stout against the run. But, but Allen and Payne can provide a good pass rush while also being stout against the run. So that, that gives us a good foundation. Um, and on, on the outside, I think at, at corner, the intriguing one to me is Forbes because at first glance you think, well, they're going to try to play a bunch of man coverage based on what they did in Dallas, uh, and Forbes really struggled in man coverage this year. But um, the style of which they went about playing man coverage, where, as I mentioned, they were so aggressive with um, committing extra rushers to force that ball out quickly, and they allowed their corners to play often with vision, but still playing man coverage and, and playing top down and driving down on everything. That does suit what Forbes wants to do in theory. Um, so I, I think he's someone that could fit that Jerome Bland or, or Trayvon Diggs role where um, you give them confidence in knowing, hey, it doesn't matter if they're going to run a double move, that pass rush is going to get home before they can throw that double move. So you go and attack anything underneath. You go be aggressive. You go hunt for the ball and try to make plays. And um, as long as that commitment to the rush is there and forcing that ball out quickly, he he could be someone that thrives in this system. So I, I think there are some pieces that translate, um, but I think they will certainly need to find uh, a lot more than what they have right now. All right. To Cliff Kingsbury, uh, impressive track record of working with and developing quarterbacks, but it's also true that his tenure as Arizona Cardinals head coach ended up not going so well. A regular season record of just a 28-37-1 ultimately had problems with quarterback Kyler Murray, although Kyler over his first three NFL seasons, which were Kingsbury's first three seasons as Cardinals head coach, did do some very good things. I am excited by the commanders hiring Kingsbury as offensive coordinator, but where are you, more optimistic or concerned? Uh, I I was more optimistic before I heard the offensive line hire. I, I, I felt like... Um, when, when I went and studied the offense, it was not at all what I expected it to be because you hear this is the air raid guy. He wants to go, as I say, four wide and up-tempo and um, very little running the ball. And that wasn't the case. of That That just wasn't what his offense was. There, there was obviously air raid passing concepts in there, um, but there's air raid passing concepts around the NFL now. Um, it, it's more... Um, he, he, as I say, he, he kind of, like Dan Quinn, he showed that he could have grown, evolved, and wasn't too set in his ways. He, he adjusted, and um, he used more tight end sets. He, he ran the ball plenty. It wasn't a case of they, it certainly wasn't what Eric Bieniemy was doing this year, where they were passing 55 times in a row. Um, it, it was it was a lot more balanced. Um, I, I think where he struggled was, was meshing the, the run game and the, and the passing game via play action and, and the actual play action concepts that they called were good. Uh, there were a lot of the stuff that you see 
the best play action teams in the league run, but um, the issue was that the run fakes that they used weren't the same as the runs that they were running in the game. So, like if you're if you're a team that primarily runs uh, gap scheme stuff where you're pulling a guard all the time, and then suddenly the the fake you use is a fake outside zone, you haven't run outside zone the whole game, then the defense isn't going to buy it quite as well so um that that was kind of the issues that he had and that, that's why i thought uh, a, a real strong and experienced offensive line coach that that had experience being kind of a run game coordinator would would be a real critical hire for him because it would help him mesh those two parts of the game um so now i'm, I'm a little bit less optimistic but i think there are still promising things there as i say like with dan quinn they both have shown the ability to set their egos aside and say, okay, I need to adjust, I need to grow, I need to evolve this system. Um, and that is a big challenge. That it, it should be the most basic thing for coaches, but it, it's not, and you often see ego coming into it, and, and it doesn't seem to be a thing for him. So um, we'll see how well he can adjust and, and, and what this kind of weird group of, of coaches that they've put together where, like, on paper, him and Brian Johnson and, and and Bobby Johnson, the two Johnsons that they they don't necessarily mesh um, on paper. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see how they fit together when when they actually get out on the field. Uh, we'll see to what extent Cliff Kingsbury's Commanders offense is a true air raid offense, but. When you think about the perceived top three quarterbacks in the 2024 NFL Draft, in which, of course, the Commanders have the number two overall pick, USC's Caleb Williams, with whom Kingsbury worked in the 2023 season as USC Senior Offensive Analyst, North Carolina's Drake May, who at Carolina ran a version of the Air Raid offense, and LSU's Jaden Daniels, who was a dual-threat quarterback like Kyler Murray, which perceived top quarterback in the 2024 draft is the best fit for Kingsbury's offense? Yeah, well, I think the obvious one is Caleb Williams um, because, you know, the, there was the the fit from Kingsbury being on the USC staff last year um, and uh, that that system was a, a variation of the air raid. And so Williams would, would fit. Um, I also think Jaden Daniels kind of, if you look for a similar comp to a guy like Kyler Murray, Jaden Daniels has that um, athletic ability that they can, he can add into the run game. Um, he does worry me from an injury standpoint because Kyler Murray is someone that was excessively uh, protecting himself by like giving himself up five yards short of people so he didn't get hit, whereas Jaden Daniels will try to run people over when and, and try to jump offensive line. I've seen him try to hurdle two offensive linemen, and I've never seen any quarterback try that before. So um, it, it, it didn't go well for him. Um, so that that kind of worries me. But from a, a play style standpoint of a uh, real strong arm, can really push the ball down the field, uh, can add into the run game, and, and um, can do the kind of off-script stuff that, that is... Um, really allowed and enabled in this system, um, Jaden Daniels would fit. Um, Drake May, again, like he, he played in an air raid system. Uh, he played under Phil Longo, um, who uh, is good friends with Cliff Kingsbury and, and runs his version of, of Kingsbury's system. So 
Drake May does also fit. I think they all have fits, but I think um, May is someone that I think will eventually be more of a traditional drop-back quarterback in a, in a traditional pro-style system, whereas I think um, Caleb Williams is, is someone that's just a transcendent talent, and, and Jaden Daniels probably profiles quite similar to Kyler Murray, so those two probably are a little bit more of a natural fit. Much more with Mark Bullock in moments. We're going to next get breakdowns of Caleb Williams, Drake May, and Jaden Daniels. Always uncertainty when drafting a quarterback or any player, but there is zero uncertainty regarding the greatness of the deal that Nova Fireplace and Stove is offering to listeners of the Al Galdi podcast. If you live in Northern Virginia and you have a masonry fireplace, you gotta call Nova Fireplace and Stove, which right now is offering an outstanding deal to listeners of the Al Galdi podcast. An in-stock wood insert at an extremely discounted price, just six thousand dollars plus tax. The usual price is nine thousand dollars plus tax. So this is a 33% discount and the six thousand dollars plus tax includes installation, permit, and county slash city inspection. And you can get a government funded tax credit as well up to two thousand dollars, dropping the price to just $4,000, all things considered. A site visit is required, and you must have a masonry fireplace. But if you live in Northern Virginia, call Nova Fireplace and Stove at 571-513-3803. Talk to my guy, Stuart Moore. He is the general manager. He's a big Commanders fan. He is a loyal listener of this podcast. Mention that Al Galdi sent you and get this exceptional deal on an in-stock wood insert. Again, 33% off. A standard masonry fireplace is only about 10% efficient, but a wood insert is over 70% efficient. A wood insert installed into a masonry fireplace elongates the burn time of your logs. This is a great way to heat your home and save money on heating your home. Visit NovaFireplaceAndStove.com to check out customer reviews of Nova Fireplace and Stove, but call Nova Fireplace and Stove 571-513-3803 and make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. That's Nova Fireplace and Stove 571-513-3803 and make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. More now with Commander's Analyst Mark Bullock of Bullock's Film Room, which you can find at markbullock.substack.com. Let us get into the quarterbacks. Uh, I'd like to start with Drake May. You, in a post on X on January 27th, called May, quote, a frustrating watch, end quote. Uh, why is he a frustrating watch? Well, he's one of these players that um, he will... He's really inconsistent with with accuracy and ball placement, and, and some of that will come down to his footwork and his mechanics being off. Um, but he'll often you'll see him in the highlight packages make these outstanding throws down the field, and, and he throws a really nice deep ball, and um, you see receivers uh, getting the ball 40, 50 yards downfield and, and hitting them in stride. And then he'll make two or three throws where he'll throw behind the running back in the flat and, and make the running back completely he'll either completely miss him or the running back will have to do a complete 360 to make the catch and um or you know on, on a slant route to a receiver he'll throw it too far in front where he can't get it or too far behind and, and stop the receiver from, from getting any yards after the catch and 
um, it, it's those frustrating misses that are the 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 ones that stand out. It, it, it's the underneath stuff where you need to be more accurate. Uh, you need to get the the ball out in front of receivers and let them pick up yards after the catch. Um, those are the ones that he tends to miss, um, and so his accuracy is quite erratic. Um, and it that is obviously a red flag, but it, it could be one that a, a quarterback's coach can look at him and go, yeah, that's just his footwork. We just need to work on his base, and, and his feet can be a little bit um, sloppy. Um, he, he can be quite choppy with his feet and, and doesn't always get them fully set properly, and, and um, he can overstride sometimes, and that can lead to some issues. And um, and so it could well be that a quarterback's coach looks at him and goes, yeah, let me get hold of him, I'll fix his feet and he'll be fine and that accuracy will improve. But that's still, you know, if you're talking about a guy you're taking second overall, that's that's not an ideal situation. You want him to be able to make all the easy stuff so that you can scheme up the more difficult things and, and hopefully hit those as, as well. So, um, so yeah, it, it's that was the frustrating part for me is that there's clearly a lot of talent there um, there's there's reason why everyone's saying he could be second or even first overall, um, it, but it's just you hate to miss the easy ones. Uh, you, in the NFL, you've got to make those easy throws, um, and he misses too many of them for, for my liking. Interesting to hear you bring up Drake May's uh, footwork as an issue because that was an issue for his uh, predecessor <laughs> as UNC's QB1, the commander, Sam Howell. How is Drake May with his decision-making? Yeah, I, I thought that in general it, it was pretty decent. Um, I, I I think um, he got a lot of... A lot of people thought that the offense this year wasn't as good as it was last year because his production went down. I actually thought the offense ran a fair few different NFL concepts. It was kind of limited in the amount, the, the volume of NFL concepts, um, but the concepts they did run were, 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 or did run, sorry, were, were good um, and stuff that you do see on Sundays. Um, and, and so he does have an understanding of how to um, read through different progressions that will come up um, on, on Sundays. And and he he showed some willingness to, to be aggressive. Uh, there was a couple of plays where, um, you have what's known as a, a smash concept where you have a receiver working to the flat and a receiver working a corner route behind it. And the idea is you're trying to get um, the flat defender put in a bind where he either has to bite up to the flat and you can throw it behind him or he sinks back underneath the corner route and you can throw the flat route and get some yards after the catch. And he, he, he on three or four occasions uh, through the games I watched, whenever they ran that concept, he was, he was reading that flat defender and trying to bait him to the flat to open up the deeper route, um, which is a good understand that it shows like he understands how he's trying to attack this defense with this concept and how he can manipulate things further open down the field. Now, some quarterbacks and, and veteran guys in the league will tell you actually what you really want to do is rather than trying to fit that ball deeper down the field, you want to get that corner sinking back and take the easiest throw underneath. But right now, those easiest throws underneath are the ones that he's missing. So uh, perhaps it's better for him to hit those ones down the field. But in general, his processing is pretty good. Um, he, he can work through progressions. Um, he, he is a little bit panicky against the blitz at times. He, he um, His offensive line wasn't great, and, and there were some times where he was anticipating pressure, certainly later on in the year. Um, where where he was anticipating pressure a little bit and, and he took off scrambling from from clean pockets, but I, I don't 
necessarily foresee that as as being a huge long term issue for him. I, I think it was kind of a situational thing where the the offensive line hadn't been great, and and it was getting worse as the year went on, and and so I guess the the feeling of that kind of built up over the season. Um, but yeah, I, I think there is certainly a lot of positives to his game, um, and the the processing, the understanding of the different concepts that he's running, how to be aggressive in attacking the defense um, is all there. Um, the, the main, as I say, the main red flag for me was the, the accuracy and ball placement with, with the easy stuff, the layups that um, that hopefully is, is something that he can just fix with, with, is a simple fix with footwork. But obviously that will, that will take time and, and reps to get right. Well, premature scrambling was uh, something that was said of Sam Howell during his final season at UNC. What about the taking of sacks? Uh, that, of course, has been an issue for Sam. How about for Drake May? Yeah, he. Um, yeah, I think his sack rate was significantly less than, than someone like Sam Howell in college. Um, he, he didn't take too many sacks because he is quite mobile and is able to get rid of the ball. And something he did quite well was throw the ball away and had admit a play was bad. Um, more of his sacks came from when he tried to take off running too early and end up running into sacks. Um, he had a little bit of a tendency to run into sacks, which is something we saw from Hal sometimes this season um, for Washington, where um, he was anticipating a little bit of pressure and, and, and tried to run, climb up the pocket when he didn't really need to. Um, and, that, and that would change the target for the for the where the, the pass rushers were trying to get to and, and it would make it harder for offensive line to block them. So um, he, he had a, t- a little tendency to do that. That's something you probably need to work out with him. But um, in general, his, his kind of pocket movement was pretty decent. He, he was pretty, he was confident in kind of climbing the pocket. He wasn't someone that was constantly drifting backwards and drifting backwards and, and leaning away as he, he was, as he was making throws. He was happy to climb the pocket and, and step into throws. Um, but yeah, it was just occasionally when he felt like he wanted to take off scrambling and, and he was climbing the pocket and wanted to scramble early, he would run into a defensive lineman and, 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 and sack himself, essentially. The great debate, Drake May versus Jaden Daniels. Uh, what are your impressions of Daniels? You can't help but see an explosive athlete. Like the, He's just insane when he takes off running. Um, and uh, people have said, like, he takes off running too early. He's a one-reading and run quarterback, which is not true, I don't think. But I, I, I saw quite a few plays, especially in that Alabama game, where he was going through reads pretty quickly. And sometimes it was almost too quick, and you'd like him to just wait an extra second on a read and, and let it develop. But he he was going through reads, going through one, two, three, and then decisively taking off running. And, and when you're the explosive athlete that he is, like he had an 85-yard touchdown. I think it was in the Florida game. It was just a read option play um, from their own 15, and it was just a basic read option play. He just takes off running and he gets the edge, and he's gone, and and nobody's catching him. Um, and then there was plays like that against Alabama too. I think he had a 50-yard touchdown run against Bama where it was a it was a pass play, and he dropped back to pass, and I think his first two reads weren't there. So he stepped up and then just took off running and they couldn't catch him and, and he went 51 yards. So when you're that explosive, you would take off running a little bit more often. Um, and obviously you don't want to miss things down the field, but when you're so explosive and and so dynamic as an athlete and you can run it 51 yards yourself without hardly getting touched, why wouldn't you? Um, so yeah, I, I think he's a really, really explosive player and 
he's not just a runner. He is a quarterback. He, he is capable of, of reading through defenses. Um, I was actually impressed in that Alabama game. When you watch college quarterbacks, you often see adjustments coming from the sideline. And, and like when I was watching Drake May, you'd, you'd quite often see him look to the sideline, get an instruction, and then he would make the adjustments of, okay, we're running this play or we're trusting this protection. Um, whereas Jaden Daniels, I didn't see him looking at the sideline that often. Um, and, and maybe he was, and I just missed it. Um, but I, I saw quite a few plays, um, especially in that Bama game, where he was making it, it looked like to me at least he was making the changes in protections and, and um, audibles himself. And I think there was a fourth down play or a third and short play where um, I didn't see him look to the sideline at all. And he just saw something and suddenly went, okay, we're changing this. And he changed the play and got him into a play where he converted to the pass. So, um, you know, the, things like that are encouraging. And, and obviously he's, he's been in college football for a little bit longer. Um, so he has a little bit more experience. He's a little bit older, but, uh, and, and that will help him. But um, those are impressive things. And, and those are things that suggest he's not just this one read and, and run quarterback. Um, he, he has a little bit more to him. Obviously, if we're talking Drake May versus Jaden Daniels in terms of running, Daniels has the edge. But if we isolate just passing, decision-making, accuracy, willingness to throw downfield, etc., who is the superior passer, May or Daniels? Yeah, I, th- I think the, the accuracy stuff with Drake May worries me a little bit um and i i didn't see that same issue with with jaden daniels like he didn't miss those layups underneath um he didn't miss the easy stuff um i think may probably um i I think may maybe has a little bit of a better deep ball um uh, although i think daniels probably has maybe a little bit of a stronger arm may's arm doesn't necessarily drive it down the field as as well as you'd like. Some, there were some deep throws down the field. If, if he wasn't fully set and on platform, um, there, there were some deep throws down the field where he was under-throwing receivers a little bit. Um, and, and in fact, May had a... a There's one that stands out. I can't I think it was maybe the Miami game um, where he had a receiver wide open down the field um, and he made the right decision to take the throw, but because he was a little bit pressured, he was a little bit off-platform, he couldn't drive that ball uh, down the field and the receiver ended up having to come back to it and, and was tackled on the one rather than a touchdown. And obviously they scored a few plays later, but you don't want that to be happening. You don't want to miss those touchdowns. Whereas Jaden Daniels, um, because he's such an explosive athlete, he's able to make those off-platform throws a little bit better. Um, but if you're talking in the pocket, uh, sort of intermediate to down the field throws, May is probably a little bit better. Um, the, obviously the underneath stuff, it is the worrying thing for me, the, the layups and the easy stuff that moves the chains and, and keeps you ahead of the chains. Um, that stuff that, that Daniels does, he's certainly more accurate at this point in time. And then again, I've only watched two games of Daniels so far, so it's not necessarily a fair comparison, but um, he, he, he doesn't have that same concern for me. So I, I would lean towards Daniels, um, but with the caveat of I, I want to watch more to get a more fair comparison. Okay, so at least right now, your lean is Jaden Daniels over Drake May. Yeah, from what I've seen so far. Um, but again, I would lean towards Daniels um, as, as a full package um, because the, the stuff with May with the accuracy underneath worries me. Um, and 
again, if you if you think it's a quick fix with the footwork, then it's not as much of a problem. But that's still something that does need to be fixed and addressed because you can't have a quarterback missing those underneath stuff so frequently. And, and it's it's accuracy is not something that you see generally improving in the NFL. Like the, everyone points to Josh Allen and, and being a guy that he was like a. I think he completed something like 53 or 55% of his passes in college and, and has jumped up to 60, 65 in, in the NFL. But that that's very much an outlier in terms of trends. Uh, most quarterbacks do not improve their accuracy when they go into the NFL. Um, and, and Allen had a lot of that same issue where he missed those layup throws underneath but could, could rip the ball down the field. Um, and they've managed, oh, they, his first few years in the league, he struggled, but... They managed to work on that footwork, and then he improved. So, um, so there is a potential path for me to improving, but the 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 trends are against him in that regard. The worry with Jaden Daniels as a runner is that he can be a bit reckless, and so the injury factor uh, could be a major factor. How concerning is that? Yeah, that that would be a concern. Uh, he definitely wasn't a uh, a slider. Um, he. he when I, the guy I remember standing out in, in terms of kind of being more mobile is Kyler Murray in that he knew his limitations and he always slid early. Even if he, he could have got an extra four or five yards, he would slide to avoid contact and protect himself. Um, Jaden Daniels is not that. Jaden Daniels is very much, I'm going to fight for every single yard I can get. And obviously you love that mentality. But when it's your quarterback and, and you need them in the game, um, it, it's something that could lead to him getting injured for sure. Um, that that would be probably the, the biggest red flag concern um, is can you get him to tone it down? And obviously this town has seen a quarterback that, that struggled to do that. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that would be a concern. But um, that would be something that a, a coach would have to try to work through. Well, Kyler Murray... Uh, the Denver Broncos, Russell Wilson, mobile quarterbacks who played baseball and not so coincidentally are very good at sliding. Uh, Caleb Williams, uh, there is a belief, it's not a universal belief, but it does seem to be the prevailing belief that the quarterback class in the 2024 draft is Caleb Williams, then a drop off, and then everyone else. Is that how you see it? Yeah, well. I do really like Caleb Williams. Um, I, I think this year in college was hard on him because the system they ran this year was dreadful. Um, and it's Cliff Kingsbury was involved in that. I don't know to what extent he was involved with that. Um, but everyone was like, when the Bears interviewed Cliff Kingsbury, it's like, oh, he's going to be their OC and they're going to go for Caleb Williams. And it's like, if I'm Caleb Williams, I'm staying as far away from Cliff Kingsbury as I possibly can, <laughs> given the offense they played in last year. That uh, It was dreadful there was no hot routes there was no route combinations it was all iso stuff and it was all down the field and it was basically just caleb scramble around and make something happen um and it was remarkable that he was able to do it as consistently as he was because he had no help um that was one where the system really was set up to make him fail and then he still had some good success so um i, I think the thing for me that has stood out with caleb williams is he has such great fundamentals. His footwork and his base is so good. Um, you can tell he's been in that QB collective that the, the Shanahan's run um, because his base is wide and his feet are calm. He's not one of those happy feet bouncing around constantly. He will happily stand and 
watch in the pocket and then move slowly and then keep his base wide so that he's in a position to throw at any given moment. Um, and that is is huge for him. It gives him a, a, a such a great foundation to work from. Um, and, and you don't see that with a lot of college quarterbacks. With the amount of times like we've talked about, like Drake May and Sam Howell and all these guys, footwork issues coming out of college. That's not something I see Caleb Williams having an issue with. Um, so that's a positive. Um, but obviously the the arm is amazing. The off script ability is amazing. Um, the, the accuracy is is pinpoint. So yeah, Caleb Williams is a, is a special prospect for me. Um, and and so. I would certainly entertain the idea of I would be giving the Bears the call at the very least and, and saying like, "Hey, what, what do you want to move up?" Um, and or you know maybe they like Drake May more, maybe they love Justin Fields and want to stick with him um, and say, "Hey, you can move down one spot. You can still grab you know Marvin Harrison or Drake May or whatever guy you want. Um, how much do you want for him?" Um, if they're going to ask for a Trey Lance or Robert Griffin the third package, I'm, I'm probably not going to that point. But part of me certainly has been wondering, you know, the commanders this offseason in, in Josh Harris's first offseason, they've landed the consensus number one GM. Um, are they going to then go and get pretty much the consensus number one quarterback? It is impossible not to at least wonder (laughs) about that. Final question, uh, the most common upside comps that we're hearing for these quarterbacks are Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes for Caleb Williams, Los Angeles Chargers quarterback Justin Herbert for Drake May, and Baltimore Ravens quarterback Lamar Jackson for Jaden Daniels. Uh, And again, these are upside comps. This isn't saying that Williams, May, and Daniels will all turn out to be like their comps. But are you a subscriber uh, to these comps? Yeah, I mean, overall, generally speaking, I'm not a huge comp guy, but um, I I can understand why people get to those levels with those guys. Obviously, Taylor Williams has this amazing ability to scramble around and make plays off script, and then the best guy in the league doing that is Patrick Mahomes, and then Caleb. That makes sense. I understand why people see that. Um, I, I think the more apt stuff is that Patrick Mahomes is actually pretty good at doing the basic stuff pretty well as well. And I think Caleb Williams, if he'd had a decent offense run for him um, in college, he probably would have showed that he could do that as well. Um, with with Drake May, I understand the Justin Herbert stuff because he's kind of a in stature. He's a taller guy. He's a bigger quarterback. He, he predominantly works more from the pocket, but he's athletic enough to, to move about. Um, I think Herbert probably has a better arm, um, and I, I think Herbert is probably more accurate. Um, but I, I can understand why people get to that comparison. And again, I can understand. I, I think Lamar is probably more explosive than pretty much anyone ever in the NFL. Um, so it's, it's hard for Jaden Daniels to be compared to that. I can understand why, because Daniels is a very, very explosive athlete and uh, a very dynamic runner. Um, but uh, I. You know, put it, put it, comparing anyone to those three guys is is, is putting unnecessary pressure on them. Um, so that, that's why, in general, I don't like comps. But I can understand why people get to those comps, certainly, yeah. All right. Tremendous stuff. Commander's analyst Mark Bullock of Bullock's Film Room, which you can find at markbullock.substack.com. Uh, Mark, thank you, and we'll talk soon. Of course, anytime. 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, the Capitals on Tuesday night concluded a stretch of five games in eight days. The Caps now have just one game in six days, but the Caps now are looking at having lost eight of their last nine games. Tuesday night, a 6-3 loss to the Colorado Avalanche at Capital One Arena. The Caps did overcome a 2-0 first period deficit, but they then lost the rest of the game 4-1. Although the Avalanche's last two goals were third period, even strength, empty net goals. But the Caps for this NHL regular season now are 23-21 and 8 and have 54 points. Good for sixth in the eight-team Metropolitan Division. And the Caps' goal differential of minus 37 is tied for the second-worst goal differential in the Eastern Conference. The bright spot from Tuesday night was the great eight scoring again. Top-line left-wing Alex Ovechkin is surging, man. Uh, He scored a power play goal nine minutes into the third period as the Caps went one of three on the power play. Ovechkin now has scored a goal in each of the Caps' last six games as he has become just the third player in NHL history with a regular season goal-scoring streak of at least six games at age 38 or older. Uh, Ovi, over his last 16 games, has 17 points, eight goals, and nine assists. And he, for this regular season now, has 14 goals. Uh, Ovi on Tuesday night, three shots on goal, nine total shot attempts. Great to see Ovechkin on fire like this. But this still is a Caps team that just does not score many goals. The Caps now have scored more than three goals just once over the team's last nine games. And the Caps on Tuesday night struggled to stop one of the best offensive teams in the NHL 
in the Avalanche. Uh, Charlie Lindgren was the cap starting goaltender for the ninth time in 13 games, but he struggled for a fourth time in five games. He stopped just 31 of the 35 shots on goal that he faced. He, over the first two periods, stopped just 18 of the 22 shots on goal that he faced. In the third period, did stop all 13 of the shots on goal that he faced. Uh, Lindgren, per natural stat trick, gave up two goals on high-danger shots on goal, one goal on a medium-danger shot on goal, and one goal on a low-danger shot on goal. Uh, the puck possession battle was mixed. The Caps had 27 shots on goal to the Avalanche's 37 shots on goal, including over the final two periods having just 15 shots on goal to the Avalanche's 27 shots on goal. But in terms of five-on-five play, the Caps did pretty well. Uh, the Caps for Natural Statric had 50 five-on-five shot attempts to the Avalanche's 47, including 10 five-on-five high-danger shot attempts to the Avalanche's seven. Uh, the Caps went at two or three on the penalty kill. But consider this, the Avalanche in this regular season now has scored 202 goals. The Caps just 127. This was Caps head coach Spencer Carberry during his post-game press conference on Tuesday night. I just felt like like we had enough looks, I, I, I thought offensively, but we just, I could tell from the start, and this has been a bit of an issue for us all year long, coming off of days off, where we go back to back, and it's a scheduled day off per the... Uh, per the union and and us coming off of where we didn't skate the previous day i find our puck touches are just it's a real struggle and so you saw like a lot of situations that we get into where you're you think something's going to happen a two on one three on two here we go and it's just um it's just not polished it's it's in someone's skates it's on their backhand it's a grenade into the corner it's a missed pass like we had three or four sorry this is early in the game like the first puck of the game we just throw away three on one and you're going whoa and then we had probably 10 more of those type of situations where players and our guys are for the most part a lot better with those pucks where that we just make head scratching um plays and decisions and, and execution it's just not polished so i thought that tonight um we were fighting it big time yeah, also in this game was an interesting lineup decision by Spencer Carberry. He had Tom Wilson on the fourth line as opposed to one of the top lines. Uh, Tom Wilson's nickname has been Top Line Tom, not Fourth Line Tom. Uh, the Caps' fourth line was Wilson as the right wing, Nick Dowd as the center, and Beck Malenstein as the left wing. The idea was for that Caps' fourth line to battle the Avalanche's line with the great Nathan McKinnon, who's one of the best centers in the NHL. The results were uh so-so. Now, McKinnon on Tuesday night did have no goals, uh, did have two assists, although one was a power play assist and the other came on an empty net goal. But the McKinnon line per natural stat trick had a five-on-five shot attempt percentage of 58.62. Uh, that Caps fourth line per natural stat trick had a five-on-five shot attempt percentage of just 43 Point four eight. Next up for the Caps at the Montreal Canadiens, Saturday night at 7. And let's talk college basketball. We on Tuesday night had Georgetown, Virginia, and Virginia Tech all playing, but only one of the teams won. Uh, that team 
was not Georgetown. Uh, it lost again. It got hammered again. The Hoyas for this season fell to 8-16 and 16 overall and 1-12 in the Big East with a 94-72 loss at number 17 Creighton on Tuesday night. The Hoyas suffered their ninth consecutive loss, lost by at least 22 points for a fourth time in six games. The Hoyas trailed by at least 14 points for the entire second half. The Hoyas' defense, really bad. They allowed Creighton to score 94 points, go 17 of 36 on threes and 17 of 22 on twos, and finish with 25 assists versus nine turnovers. The Hoyas allowed 6-7 Baylor Shireman to have a triple-double. You don't often see triple-doubles in college basketball, but we got one in this game on Tuesday night. Shireman in 31 minutes as a starter, 15 points, 11 rebounds, and 11 assists versus two turnovers. He did go just two a night on threes, four or five on twos, and one of two on free throws. Georgetown now for this season is... 313th out of 362 Division I men's basketball teams in KenPalm.com's adjusted defensive efficiency, which is points allowed per 100 possessions adjusted for opponents. Let that sink in. 313th out of 362 teams. And the Hoyas shooting on Tuesday night was not good. Uh, they went 7-19 on threes, okay, but also just 19-42 of 42 on twos and just 13 of 19 on free throws. Uh, 6-2 Illinois transfer Jaden Epps. in 35 minutes as a starter. Went 3 of 8 on threes, but just 3 of 10 on twos. He went 2 of 3 on free throws. Finished with 17 points and 3 assists versus 1 turnover. The biggest positive for the Hoyas was 6-9 Fairfield transfer Supreme Cook. He in 31 minutes as a starter. Went 8 of 13 from the field. All twos. He did go just 3 of 6 on free throws, but he finished with 19 points, 11 rebounds, including 7 offensive boards and two steals. Next up for Georgetown, home to Villanova Friday night at 7. A surprising loss for number 21 Virginia on Tuesday night. So much for the Cavaliers being back to being ranked in an Associated Press top 25 poll. The Cavs for this season fell to 19-6 and overall and 10-4 and in the ACC with a 74-63 loss to Pitt at John Paul Jones Arena in Charlottesville, Virginia on Tuesday night. Multiple streaks came to an end. The loss snapped the Cavs' eight-game winning streak and snapped their 23-game home winning streak, which had been the longest current home winning streak in Division I men's basketball. Also, this game ended the Cavs' streak of 48 consecutive ACC home games in which the Cavs held their opponent to fewer then 70 points. Uh, The two determining factors in this game were three-point shooting and offensive rebounding. The Wahoos went just four of 14 on threes and allowed Pitt to go 14 of 32 on threes. The Who's defense during the team's eight-game winning streak was really good. Uh, The defense on Tuesday night, not good. And the Who's on Tuesday night had just three offensive rebounds to Pitt's 11 and thus just two second-chance points to Pitt's 13. Uh, The Who's lost despite outscoring Pitt in the paint 36-22 and despite having 19 assists versus 
five turnovers. 34 of the Who's 63 points came from just two players, Reese Beekman and Isaac McNeely. 6-3 Reese Beekman, he in 33 minutes, 25 seconds as a starter, went 0 of 1 on threes, 8 of 13 on twos, and 3 of 4 on free throws. He finished with 19 points, 6 rebounds, and 5 assists versus 2 turnovers. And 6-4 Isaac McNeely, he in 36 minutes, 56 seconds as a starter, went 2 of 6 on threes, 3 of 3 on twos, and 3 of 3 on free throws. He finished with 15 points, 3 rebounds, and 3 assists versus 1 turnover. He did have a team worst plus minus rating of minus 13. Next up for Virginia, home to Wake Forest Saturday at noon. Uh, Now, UVA's previous game prior to this home loss to Pitt on Tuesday night was an 80-76 win at Florida State this past Saturday night. Uh, Tuesday night, we saw Virginia Tech beat Florida State. The Hokies for this season improved to 14-10 overall and 6-7 in the ACC with an 83-75 win over Florida State at Castle Coliseum in Blacksburg, Virginia. A much-needed win for Tech, which had lost three consecutive of games. The Hokies went just 11 of 31 on twos, but also went 11 of 23 on threes and went 28 of 32 on free throws and had 13 offensive rebounds to Florida State six, although uh, Tech's edge and second chance points was just 10 6. Uh, the Hokies allowed Florida State to go 8 of 18 on threes and 16 to 27 on twos. So the defense was not spectacular, but Florida State missed a lot of free throws, just 19 to 29 on free throws. 6 uh, 3, Hunter Couture, good game for him, 39 minutes as a starter, 4 of 6 on threes. Did go just 2 of 6 on twos, but also 4 of 4 on free throws. He finished with 20 points, 4 rebounds, and 3 assists versus no turnovers. A 6 1 point guard, Sean Padula, he and 29 minutes as a starter, went one of three on threes, just one of six on twos, but also 14 of 16 on free throws. Yeah, 16 free throw attempts for Padula in this game. He finished with 19 points, four assists versus four turnovers and four rebounds. And 6'10 center Lynn Kidd, he in 28 minutes as a starter, had 12 points and 15 rebounds, including six offensive boards. Did go just 4-9 from the field. All twos went four of six on free throws. Next up for Virginia Tech, a big game at number seven, North Carolina, Saturday afternoon at two. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can hit me up on X at Al Galdi. You can email me the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Thursday show, episode 763. We'll provide you with more on the commanders. Also on Thursday show, I'll talk Wizards and Maryland basketball. The Wizards are at the New Orleans Pelicans Wednesday night at 8 in the Wizards' final game before the NBA All-Star break. The Terrapins are home to Iowa Wednesday night at 8.30. Have a great rest of your Wednesday, and I'll talk to you on Thursday. Great cash, homie.